Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garner. It's Thursday, March 30th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. A bizarre situation involving smuggled monkeys, international intrigue, and criminal investigations has sweeping implications for biotech. We'll explain. We'll also discuss what happens when drugs are too cheap, whether every major pharma company needs a weight loss drug, and what it means when a company cancels a conference appearance. But first, a word from our sponsor. Calling all healthcare innovators and biotech enthusiasts. Are you ready to discover the cutting edge developments at the intersection of medicine, biology, and technology? Mark your calendars from May 3rd and 4th to join the STAT Breakthrough Summit in San Francisco. This exclusive event features industry thought leaders such as Dr. Mary Claire King, known for her groundbreaking discovery of the BRCA1 gene, and Dr. Kazmekia Corbett, whose team developed the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine, and Jennifer Doudna, the co-inventor of CRISPR. You'll be at the forefront of the discussions driving the future of healthcare. Don't miss this rare opportunity to network with your peers and gain a deeper understanding of the thrilling advancements in healthcare and technology. Register now at statnews.com slash summit, and we'll see you there. So guys, we are ending the first quarter of 2023. Adam, how did biotech do? Not great stock-wise, Meg. It's it's uh, kind of not de- great, Bob. <laughs> not great. Uh, yeah, it's a little depressing here at the end of the quarter. Uh, as we record this podcast, uh, the XBI, which is the sort of broadest measure of biotech stock performance that we look at, is down about eight percent for the well year to date or the first quarter. And that compares to about a 5% gain in the S&P 500. So uh, biotech sector is underperforming the broader markets. Uh, you know, and it's been... It's been kind of a weird quarter in that, you know, we started off actually pretty well. If you look at the performance of the XBI um, into just early February, it was up like 11%. Uh, and then since early February, it's basically been straight downhill. And, you know, a lot of people point to just macro economic factors as the reason, uh, you know, that the sector is under pressure because of rising interest rates. As, as we know, biotech is a uh, cash burning endeavor. And so uh, in a, in an in an era or environment of rising interest rates, more expensive money, um, investors tend to flee uh, biotech stocks, and that's and that's what we're seeing. How like so from a stock perspective, it hasn't been great, but you know from a otherwise perspective, um, either in terms of you know the activity going on uh, between companies, considering the you know Pfizer CGen deal, or most importantly. Um, clinical data readouts. How did it look from that perspective? Yeah, I mean, you know, fundamentally, it wasn't the the bad quarter. I mean, we had a bunch of positive data readouts. We won't go through them all all here. You know, you mentioned the Pfizer CGEN deal. So we've gotten some decent M&A. So again, it just kind of shows us that, you know, sort of there are other forces at play that that impact biotech stocks while kind of the, you know, the sort of the fundamentals can kind of chug along. I will say that, you know, we are seeing, uh, we're just continuing to see more restructuring structurings 
and layoffs in the industry. This is something that we started to see late last year and, and it's continuing. Um, Fierce Biotech, which is an industry trade publication, tracks layoffs and restructurings in, in the biotech industry. Uh, there were 15 companies announcing restructurings or layoffs in March. There were 23 in February and 14 in January. So you know, again, that is an issue. Uh, companies are having a hard time raising money. Companies obviously are burning money, and um, you know they're looking ahead and, and it, to a prospect of where you know maybe they they're not going to be able to raise as much money, and they're going to have to cut costs, um, you know, trim down operations, and unfortunately that means uh, laying off employees. We talked about that a lot among the very small biotech companies um, in part of this you know sector, but you know Amgen also had some layoffs. Are we starting to see this seep into the bigger companies too? Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, you know, on a percent basis, obviously, uh, you know, a couple hundred people laid off at Amgen is not as significant as a company that lays off like 50%, a smaller company that lays off 50% of their workforce. But I think you're right, Meg. I mean, we, I think it's something to watch as, as we're seeing, you know, these kinds of concerns are even hitting the larger companies in the biotech world. Speaking of concerns hitting companies in the biotech world, Damien, you and Ed Silverman had a really interesting story about what is going on with the shortage of monkeys. Tell us what is happening. That's right. So this has been evolving over a number of months, beginning basically with the revelation that in Cambodia, there was a scandal in which some people who are now being charged with crimes were poaching long-tailed macaques from wildlife preserves, so these are protected animals, and passing them off as research primates that would then find their way into labs in the United States and around the world, which is a niche and, and kind of fascinating little like international crime story. But the knock-on effect is that it turns out the vast majority of research primates used in labs in the United States, whether they be at research institutions or, or at biotech and pharma companies, come from Cambodia. And so that led to functionally a halt on exports or allowed imports from the United States of these research primates as the uh, Fish and Wildlife Department and other authorities are trying to get a handle on just how to verify that a given alleged research primate is not in fact a poached creature. And the poaching, of course, is both unethical and illegal for obvious reasons, but it also creates scientific risks because if you think that you are purchasing a bred in captivity research primate whose you know health details, let's say, are well understood and kind of controlled, but instead you get a wild animal, that could actually have effects on the outcome of the research you do, which tends to be like toxicology studies to make sure new treatments are safe before they go into human clinical trials. So there's like a serious scientific risk attached to this. So cutting to the present, we are now in this holding pattern where until federal regulators decide how to approach uh, regulating, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, the import of these primates, there just basically aren't any coming in. And so thus there's a shortage of these primates and cr that creates a bottleneck for biotech companies, by and large, trying to do these very necessary toxicology studies. So um, Ed and I, and this is mostly Ed, and that's why the bylines appear in the order that they do, um, reach out to a lot of these companies to figure out what's going on. And what we learned is essentially biotech companies are a little bit far down the game of telephone with respect to how this process works. So some of them are in the dark, but they're very conscious of the potential risks here, which is that the the price of these primates is going up. The timelines for these studies is extending. And so you can imagine the fear, you know, as Adam mentioned, 
the biotech industry is not exactly in a great situation with respect to the market and access to cash. So if you are a cash-restrained, cash-burning biotech firm and you face the possibility of pushing back the start of a clinical trial or whatever your next milestone is by even three months, let alone six or more if this persists, that could be a real problem for your business. You may have to go to your investors for more money. You may have to go to the public markets for more money and raise money in a dilutive way because of the way stocks are trading. So this is kind of like a snowballing issue that that takes root in this uh, global smuggling scandal. And it's it's been fascinating to kind of peer into because it's the kind of risk, I think, that doesn't come immediately to mind when one thinks about the many risks inherent to developing a new drug. So it's a good point, Damien, because I don't think we talk a lot about preclinical data or preclinical studies. Certainly, we don't like, you know, dissect animal data. No pun intended. Sorry about that. Um, but, you know, what do companies say to you when you when you ask about this? I mean, it, you know, obviously, they're all sort of the, you know, the the sort of the things about animal studies and the controversies there we know. Um, are they willing to talk to you about this? Are they not? And And is there a solution to this problem? So a handful were willing to to basically speak to us about the potential risks here and the concerns that they have, but a great many more either declined to comment or just didn't respond at all, which I think, you know, I don't know why. Uh, I, I would like to think that talking to me on the phone is a delightful experience for anyone, but there are two possible reasons for that. One, it is a risk for them, and they don't want to be there publicly perceived describing this risk so it might affect their stock price or the perception of their company if they're telling me, for example, that, oh, yeah, we're afraid of this and, and we might have to push back our plans. The secondary thing, and and we've talked about this, I think, on this podcast in the past, companies are skittish about describing animal research, even though it's integral to the entire industry and uh, many forms of science, because nobody likes to think about the fact that there are many, many <laughs> dead animals between a promising scientific idea and a approved drug, let alone a drug that just goes into clinical trials. And that skittishness is, is sometimes understandable. Um, well, it's even it's even apparent in the in the euphemisms that that we hear. It's like we often hear companies talk about NHP studies, right? Which versus non-human primate, human yeah. primate studies, right? So we don't we don't say, oh, yeah, we're, we're you know, we're testing this in a bunch of monkeys. They say NHP. Right. And there have been incidents in the past where the vivariums, I think, is the term basically where uh, research institutions keep their research animals have been under threat from activists. And and I mean, it, it's it, this doesn't happen often, but I think just the specter of something like that is enough to make a lot of companies uh, less than willing to speak publicly about animal research. And the NIH has kind of been backing away from research on chimps as well, right? I mean, I guess in ways that it feels like it can back away from it, but I guess the problem with drug research is what are the alternatives for, you know, testing before you go into humans? I mean, this is a much <laughs> bigger <laughs> ethical question, but with the, you know, system as it is now, it's required, right, for all of these companies to do these kinds of tests. So, is there any sort of relief on the horizon for when this situation gets resolved? Potentially, because one of the things we learned is that so non-human primates is often I don't want to say the final level because that seems a little uh, it's not quite accurate, but because the monkey immune system is the closest to the human one in the animal kingdom, um, it is often a desired step, especially for newer forms of therapy. So gene therapy, I know for messenger RNA, 
uh, non-human primate studies were a, a big thing before getting into the clinic there. But the FDA doesn't like statutorily require, if you're doing a gene therapy, you must show us monkey data, for example. It's very case by case, is what we were told. But these companies are, are risk averse in general. So there's a perception that non-human primate data is necessary in the sense that you wouldn't want to go to the FDA and be told that what you have is not enough, and then you have to push back your timelines and et cetera. These companies are conservative and, and want to kind of over-prepare. So the question that's kind of out there is, will the FDA in its case-by-case determinations take, for example, pig data, because pigs also similar to, to human beings in many ways, in many tissues, especially the heart, in lieu of non-human primate data that they might have otherwise required because of this shortage. That's not something the FDA would obviously commit to, to us publicly, and probably wouldn't commit to in private to these companies anyway. But there's uncertainty, I guess, is the end of my my statement, around how to handle this if you're one of these companies going forward. Because I think you know, the FDA doesn't want to just be a barrier for no reason. I, I do think the agency wants to be reactive to this, but also, you know, I hope is inherent to this, or one would assume listening to this, the whole thing that everybody's concerned about here is human safety in the long term. So you wouldn't want to skip a step that could have detected a toxicity of some new therapy that will then present itself in a human being and could have been avoided if you had gone through this step. So that's that's what everybody's kind of juggling now. So on this podcast, we often talk about the problem of drugs being too expensive. Uh, but there's also a problem that arises when drugs are too cheap. Meg, you've been doing some reporting on this uh, as it relates to drug shortages. Tell us what's going on. Yeah. So this week on CNBC, we rolled out a, a three-day series that we called Failure to Fill, which I feel like is a brilliant title that my wonderful producer, Leanne Miller, came up with. Um, and it's about the fact that we are having record high drug shortages right now. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, our listeners are in the industry. They follow the industry. They know that this is not a new problem. Drug shortages have been going on for you know decades here in the U.S. However, they are at a historical high right now, at least a decade high. Um, it was made worse by the pandemic, but it was certainly not a problem created by the pandemic. I think the pandemic just sort of exacerbated an already really fragile system that we have for particularly older, very inexpensive medicines. And, you know, when you combine old medicines, inexpensive medicines, and then the triple whammy is, you know, complex medicines like sterile injectables, which can be, you know, these very crucial drugs for use in hospitals, even things like saline. You know, we've heard about the shortages that have arisen there um, stemming from Hurricane Maria, which hit Puerto Rico, where a lot of these things were made. Um, you know, th these have been going on for a long time. And, you know, now it's affecting things across the whole spectrum of therapeutics from antibiotics to cancer drugs. Um, we also hear a lot about ADHD drugs that are in shortage. That's not exactly for the, the same reason. Um, we also have heard about the new GLP-1 drugs being in shortage. That is also not for the same reason, but we're having a lot of problems across the whole industry. One thing that really came through, um, especially in your conversation with, with David Maris, is that this is obviously a, a market failure, but also a, a tricky one in that the companies that we societally want to supply these very necessary medicines, when you look at their businesses, their margins, their everything about what they do, they're not very good. They're not making a lot of money. Like this isn't the classic <laughs> case of like, you yeah. know, just greed capturing, uh, you know, some or like a rentier economy that is like having downstream effects. Like 
Mylan, when it was still called Mylan, was like kind of a bad business, even during the EpiPen scandal. And so what kind of solutions do people propose to kind of bridge the gap where these medicines that we need can actually be available when we need them, but also the companies that we apparently need to to supply them can stay afloat? Yeah, this was something I really wanted to dig into with this series, because I think, you know, from the outside, there are a lot of sort of misunderstandings about the generic drug business. Um, And really, generic drugs are obviously incredibly critical to the healthcare system. They're 90% of all medicines sold here in the United States. But they are also predominantly the drugs that most frequently fall into shortage. And if you look at the valuations of companies like Teva, like Viatris, which is Myelin plus Pfizer's Upjohn unit, um, and like Amniol, I mean, they are at fractions of their valuations from you know several years ago. Their, their revenue is shrinking, their debt has piled up, or they're all making progress on paying that off. And I just really wanted to dive into like whether this is a viable business model at this point. And you know, talking with a lot of in, uh, analysts across the industry, some of the things they pointed out is if you think about Teva and you think about Mylan, they were really supported by branded products for a while. Like Mylan had the EpiPen. We all remember the price hikes on the EpiPen. Teva had Copaxone, the MS drug. And even now, the thing people are most excited about with Teva is still a branded product. You know, it's migraine drug. So the actual generics part of their businesses are sort of like they're not the things that people are excited about, and yet they are so crucial to our healthcare system. And so I spoke with Eric Tishy at the Mayo Clinic, who also is the chair of this new entity called the End Drug Shortages Alliance. And he was pointing out, you know, if this was happening to something like water or to power, we wouldn't stand for it. Like, he even brought up the idea of should we be thinking about generic drugs or antibiotics or you know any of these kinds of things more like utilities like they're a public good and yet we're depending on you know public company publicly traded companies to supply us with these and if we need to make changes in the system how do we make those and that was something i talked about with david maris like is this compatible with capitalism and he was saying you know in order to fix this problem there are a couple things we need first you know a lot of the manufacturing has been pushed out of the United States because we want cheaper and cheaper drugs. Um, So maybe bringing some of that back, and that's something the U.S. has talked about, even from a national security perspective, could help with that. But, you know, Aaron Fox, who's one of the just, you know, predominant researchers on drug shortages, has said that won't solve all of the problems because a lot of the drug shortages stem from closures of U.S. plants. Like Acorn Pharmaceuticals went bankrupt in February. It was the only maker of a drug for lead poisoning and the severest effects when children get brain swelling from lead poisoning. That drug is just gone now. It's not available in the United States. You can import it from France. There are two other drugs for lead poisoning, but we spoke with the medical director of the Poison Control Center at CHOP, who said that is the best drug, and we're facing a bleak future where we don't have that available to us right now. So just, you know, importing, you know, or putting more manufacturing in the U.S. won't completely solve this problem. David Maris was saying you also need to do something to prop up the generics industry to help maybe guarantee more profits, have like guaranteed purchasing orders, things like that. And, you know, he was saying maybe that's not compatible with capitalism where people say you're messing with capitalism. But like, do we need to think about that if we care about consumers and not just about, you know, making money? Is there anyone talking about, I don't want to call it a public bailout or a government bailout, but, you know, bringing in the public sector, the government to sort of help with this problem versus just leaving it to capitalism or the private sector? 
Yeah. Well, so there was just a Senate report from the it was the Senate Committee on um, Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs uh, that looked at this. And they did encourage Congress to try to step in to invest in advanced manufacturing technologies um, in and near the United States. Another thing that people like Aaron Fox say is really important is just transparency, knowing where all of the ingredients in the supply chain come from, you know, from the active pharmaceutical ingredients all the way through the finished drug product. Those can come from all over the world and you can run into issues at every step in that process. So just transparency into that um, would help a lot as well. But then, you know, there's an idea like we just had the CHIPS Act where the U.S. is investing billions of dollars to try to make semiconductors in the United States. Like, should we have that for antibiotics or for other drug manufacturing. I asked David Maris that question, like, would that help? And he said, yeah, the drug industry would love that. And yet that would not even completely solve the problem because the generic drug business is still not a great business. You know, that you have to guarantee some kind of better profit in order to have the incentives be there for companies to continue to invest. I think Erin Fox put it so well when she was like, we've never had a shortage of Humira. We've never had a shortage of Keytruda because the incentives are there to make sure that Merck and AbbVie have really robust manufacturing for those multi-billion dollar medicines. And the incentives are not there for cheap old drugs. Maybe I still have residual Senator Bernie Sanders in my brain from last week's hearing. But the notion (laughs) of, if not nationalizing, then semi-nationalizing generics has been around for a while. And it has interesting intellectual bedfellows because I remember Jeremy Corbyn proposed a similar thing in the United Kingdom when he was uh, running for prime minister. That obviously didn't work out. So too did Senator Elizabeth Warren here, I think post her presidential campaign in fairly recent years, Um, kind of push forward the idea of the United States having basically its own generic manufacturing capacity to deal with issues like this, but also none other than Martin Shkreli, if I recall correctly, pre-incarceration, this was during the EpiPen scandal, kind of made the case that, yeah, like we were saying, that the margins on these companies are terrible. Maybe this is something that the United States should look at to your point, Meg, as more like a utility, as, as like a power company, something that would be heavily regulated and, and government subsidized, if not government run in exchange for, you know, guaranteed supply and kind of sweetheart deals on advanced purchasing. So like the, the substrate of this idea is out there. And like many people have kind of reached this conclusion that at least the way we do it right now is like wholly unpracticable and, and unsustainable. I, I have no idea what will happen though. Well, if it's something that Martin Shkreli and Bernie Sanders can agree on, maybe it really is the solution. (laughs) Okay, switching topics. Uh, So, Meg, you had a recent conversation with the CEO of Novo Nordisk. Um, What did he tell you about obesity drugs, which is obviously a topic of uh, high interest? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think Jared Holtz over at Mizuho, who I apparently quote in every podcast episode now, (laughs) um, (laughs) he said that this new class of medicines, the incretin mimetics, um, are essentially the ones that are getting the most attention from investors in healthcare right now because they're actually bringing generalist investors back into the space, which is always the thing that like really sways um, valuations. Of course, as you pointed out at the top of the episode, Adam, that is not necessarily helping biotech more broadly um, because these mainly are things that are being done at big pharma companies. However, we did get some uh, biotech data, which we will get to later. Um, What was I going to talk about? Oh, the Novo Nordisk CEO. That's right. So um, he joined us as well as uh, Novo's head of drug discovery uh, for the Healthy Returns Conference at CNBC this week. Um, we talked a lot about Wagovi and Ozempic. And, you know, a lot of the questions I really wanted to ask were just about 
you know, these things are so widely used now and there's so much interest in them. The questions that I think a lot of people have are, you've got to keep taking these drugs indefinitely in order to keep weight down. Uh, And if you have to do that, how much is known about the long-term safety of taking these medicines? Um, Here's what they told us about that. So right now, the data that we are generating is, you know, two years, three years, I think, is the maximum that we have at the moment. And uh, so far, we can say that the the drugs are well tolerated. There is no safety uh, that we are aware. Uh, We continue to monitor this. So, you know, essentially, they're saying... They've got a few years worth of data, but people are going to continue to watch that really closely. And I do think that is one of the outstanding questions about this space as these are used so broadly. Are we going to see any kinds of safety risks appear, which could really derail things? Um, Or do things look pretty okay? Where where are you guys sort of on that question? I think it's really interesting. I mean, we know from years and years and years of data that for pretty much all well-studied weight loss interventions, whether pharmaceutical or otherwise, people tend to gain the weight back and more uh, within a number of years of stopping that. Even if it, not years, it can be months for some of them. So on, on some level, that, that's been, I, I feel like the assumption has been among informed people that that would be the case for these new medicines, that they need to be taken in perpetuity. And then, you know, when, when you see people kind of push back against the cultural embrace of these medicines, they often point out that there's plenty history uh, or there's plenty history in pharmaceuticals of side effects, certain side effects not emerging until a lot of people have taken a drug for a long period of time such that we get that information. So I think that's just kind of been a lingering risk and or something people have assumed to be the case about these medicines as to whether they will or that will have any effect on the demand for them doesn't seem like it. I mean, the demand for them has been um, resounding to the point, as you mentioned earlier, Meg, that that drug shortages have been an issue there. And there was news this week that Canada basically said, will you Americans please stop coming across the border to get these weight loss drugs? They are for Canadians uh, with type 2 diabetes, not you. Um, So probably it, it won't change the narrative too much. I don't know. I guess anything is possible. And that demand also extends to uh, investors who are looking at companies, other companies that are developing obesity drugs, guys. You know, uh, this week, you know, we had uh, data of a really a small amount of data, a very encouraging data, but small amount of data from a company called Viking Therapeutics, uh, you know, which essentially the stock has doubled this year now because now people look at this and say they may have a promising obesity drug in their pipeline and you know the 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 reverse there's a reverse effect when when drugs don't work uh you know a couple weeks ago we had a company called Altimmune who had an obesity drug which the data did not look good um uh, had potential some side effect issues and and that stock is is off sharply so you know people are uh, on the investment on the Wall Street side people are really sort of looking for the next novo uh, they're looking uh, for the next Eli Lilly. It, it'll be interesting to see what happens. These are tiny companies. Um, this is a this is very much of a big pharma market. Uh, you know, you're going up against an Eli Lilly or a Novo, uh, and you know that has obviously brought up all kinds of speculation about M and A and whether or not these little companies who who may have these promising weight loss drugs will uh, you know will be acquired. Yeah, I think those two news pegs kind of showed us like the sliding doors of this, which, which is that you know the Altimmune drug. I believe it met its goals in that trial, but Adam, as you mentioned, the sort of benefit risk profile didn't look competitive with these massive products from Novo and Lilly and some of the other ones further along in the pipeline, kind of illustrating that 
anyone who wants to compete in this market, there's a high bar set to begin with, and then you would have to exceed the benefits of the medicines that are out there or have some kind of other advantage like less frequent dosing or, or better side effects or something like that. And that's going to be very difficult. So small biotech companies with GLP-1 or slash GIP or whatever kind of metabolic drugs in the pipeline, it's going to be difficult. The Viking thing is interesting because, like you said, it's early data and and it's promising data. But, you know, Viking Therapeutics, a relatively small company, I think the market cap is like a billion dollars. I don't think anyone thinks that Viking itself is going to develop, commercialize, and compete with the likes of Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk with this medicine. It's more this theory that will these metabolic drugs, GLP-1, et cetera, become kind of like the PD-1 drugs in cancer, of which I believe there are now eight that want FDA approval, because the big companies in oncology all decided we need to have our own one of these checkpoint inhibitors for combinations and for just the purposes of being in oncology. It's conceivable that companies that do work in metabolic disease, so like Merck, Sanofi, et cetera, which don't currently have marketed P- or GLP-1 drugs, might perceive themselves as needing one. And thus, a company like Viking would be kind of an obvious acquisition target for them. We haven't seen that play out, may not end up being the case, but that's kind of an interesting thing to watch moving forward, at least on the biotech side of this whole story. Yeah, and there are a lot more Viking type companies out there. You know, I was just kind of curious about the pipeline for obesity drugs the other day. So I have a database that I use and I I looked to kind of see what was out there. And they're like, I found like 60 different drugs that are targeted to obesity, different mechanism of actions, but over 60 of them, I looked at a lot of the companies, the private, public companies that I had never heard of, really tiny companies. So I think we're going to see, you know, this is just, a, this is big business and there's a lot at stake here. So we're going to see a lot of these companies develop these drugs, see what happens with them. Uh, and there are probably a lot more that were not captured in the database that I was looking at. So uh, I think we'll be talking about this uh, for weeks and months and years to come. And just to sort of wrap the conversation up back where we began, One of the interesting things I think the Novo people told us is that, of course, as we know, you you do have to keep taking the drug in order to keep the weight off with this current iteration. Um, But one of the things they said might be in the sort of future, the next step for these medicines is actually to change things to the degree that having taken the drug, you don't need to take it forever and that that could actually help people maintain weight loss. you know, whether that will get figured out is a really interesting question. But as you're thinking about how, you know, there's going to be so many drugs in this space, how do they keep competing? They have to get better. Um, that could mean more weight loss if that is appropriate. Um, it could mean, as you know, we had Ethan Weiss on CNBC the other night, um, who is somebody who studies these things. Um, he said one of the most important things is to have better tolerability profiles. So that could be something as well. So it'll be interesting to see how these drugs improve over time. All right, so let's wrap up this podcast with uh, talk about, or let's let's just say speculation about a company uh, <laughs> that was triggered by a cancellation at an investment conference. Meg, what happened? Yeah, so um, Bridge Bio stock was up at one point. They were like the second highest, um, you know, biotech company in you know one of the biotech indexes uh, yesterday. Um, sorry, yesterday meaning Wednesday. And I was looking around to try to figure out what news is there, and I see people speculating on Twitter about them having canceled out of a planned appearance at a Guggenheim investor conference next week, and in biotech 
parlance, like that means people (laughs) think that they are imminently going to be acquired. And it was there was a lot more like sort of playing into this for Bridge Bio yesterday because they had, you know, positive phase two data in a chondroplasia uh, that looked, you know, comparable or, or perhaps I don't know if better, but it's mid-stage study, but then, you know, the approved drug from Biomarin um, earlier this month. And then Bloomberg reported that there is takeover interest in the company. Um, So all of that's kind of playing into this speculation. And so it made me wonder, you know, how frequently when a biotech company cancels out of an investor conference, is it actually because it's imminently going to be acquired? And I actually got some like interesting responses on Twitter. People said Actelion, was one where that may have happened. I did not go back and actually try to verify all of this. Um, somebody else messaged me Horizon at the Piper Conference, Global Blood at Wedbush, um, also said bio. It, it only has to happen uh, once for right. people to point to something and say, look, it can happen, right? So as long as there's just one example of a company canceling an investor conference and then being acquired you know, relatively quickly after that, that then then that's that's enough for the speculation and rumors. I also appreciated a Twitter message I got um, where somebody said they asked ChatGPT to uh, check the meaning of withdrawal from an investment conference. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it couldn't find any academic uh, or corporate study or academic or business database on this, um, which I thought was very funny. And I thought it was ingenious to have asked ChatGPT that question. The one thing that always comes to mind when this sort of biotech magical thinking happens, whatever the the odds that it ends up, you know, being predictive of something, is I believe it was 2016, Alexion Pharmaceuticals did exactly this. They canceled the conference presentation and the stock went up on this speculation, et cetera, et cetera. But that turned out to be the infamous tone at the top situation with Alexion, which we, we, we may all remember, which the company disclosed in SEC filing that something very bad had been taking place among its executive leadership. And a bunch of them got replaced because of the, quote, tone at the top that they were going through. And then the stock tanked, of course, because probably the company wasn't going to get bought as it had just dumped but Damien, most of its management. Damien, years it and years did. later, they did get acquired. <laughs> So it just maybe That's just true. took All a little. All you gotta do in biotech is hang out long enough, and everything's took, gonna get acquired. Yeah, it took a little. It took a little longer than expected, but you know they they did get acquired. And it was the conference cancellation that set it in motion. That was it. Sure. That was it. <laughs> I, I will say um, that when these sort of rumors happen, you, you see kind of the knee jerk reaction on the sell side from analysts to sort of start put out notes, sort of listing many reasons why a deal might happen because obviously everybody wants something to happen. So I have to give a shout out to uh, Mizuho's Salim Syed, who put out a note yesterday, basically making the call that Bridge Bio was not going to be acquired. So I, I, I sort oh, of appreciated that. Bold. Yeah. yeah, very bold. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Ambonado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether it's pronounced macaque or macaque. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.